One thing I've learned in the process of making this podcast over the last two years is that I am fucking terrible at taking notes during a film. Whatever instinct you need to be able to watch a film and take notes on it, I don't have it. I have never taken notes while watching a film. Okay. I think that's that's the coward's way. Okay. And that's... I have no respect for it. <laughs> that makes me feel better. Hello and welcome to The Sunday Presents with me, Kira Maloney. And me, Dean Buckley. The premise of this podcast is that I make Dean watch one of my favorite films that he's never seen or vice versa. In this case, not vice versa. No. But the exact thing that I said the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're kicking off the third season of our podcast after the surprise reveal at the end of our last episode (laughs) that we have had seasons this entire time. This entire time. Those versus episodes were finales, idiots. <laughs> you think we only do one of them a year? Oh my god. Anyway, <laughs> we're kicking off season three not with a film from like the AFI 100 or something from some like critics sight and sound poll or something from the Vatican list of films. These are the kinds of cultural touchstones me and Kira rely on when it comes to this. This makes it sound like it's like. It's 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 a very acclaimed film. It's it's very well liked. Nobody really talks about it anymore, I don't think, but that's because nobody talks about anything they should talk about anymore. I think we should bring back Dirk Richter. Kids will wanna see the original radioactive man. I keep telling you, he's seventy-three years old and he's dead. I I, I am being facetious, don't worry. Uh we're we're starting off with the nineteen ninety-seven rom com sort of as good as it gets. Yes, and not uh, something that I found out existed while going to the Wikipedia page, which is the ECW wrestling event, as good as it gets in oh 1997. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. What a bonus episode that would be. You're looking at America's hottest porn queen and part-time ECW roving reporter Jenna Jameson. Why? No particular reason. Sex sells. And she's extreme. Yeah, written and directed by James L. Brooks, who's, you know, the GOAT, despite later events. That makes it sound like he's a rapist or a murderer. What I mean is that he made Spanglish. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, because... (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I was thinking, uh, James L. Brooks from the Mary Tyler Moore Show to The Simpsons. What a what a career he's had in changing culture. And then you made that remark, and I was like, oh god, do I have to? No, James L. James L. Brooks's legacy is is untarnished, other than he made Spanglish and How Do You Know. And neither of those films are great, but they're not terrible either. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> but that okay. So, like you said, the Mary Tyler Moore Show. I think you're more familiar with James L. Brooks as a um, as a TV guy, 100%. as a TV guy, and obviously that was a big, like he is a very famous and important TV guy. Uh, mm. Mary Tyler Moore Show, Taxi, The Simpsons, famously very big and important TV guy. Are you familiar at all previous to this with his film work? I know that he is the man behind Terms of Endearment, but I've never seen Terms of Endearment. <laughs> and okay, yeah. Other than that, I think probably my major exposure to James L. Brooks's film work was 
all the times I've seen bits of As Good As It Gets on TV3. <laughs> <laughs> but never the whole thing. No, never the whole thing. Yeah, I I actually wrote in my notes that As Good As It Gets is what you might call a TV3 movie. <laughs> <laughs> By which I mean, so for our international listeners, TV3 is a uh, a TV station that hasn't been called TV3 in about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I will never call it Virgin <laughs> Media 1. Fuck off. <laughs> and I was very much raised by television, which I'm sure my mother will be very glad to hear me say on the public <laughs> airways. But like, I... I am very happy to have been raised by television. I love television, and, and it very much formed my... It's good. Te- TV's good. I'm glad that I, <laughs> I'm sitting in front of the television. And for me, As Good As It Gets is one of those movies that's imprinted very deeply in my mind as, like, you know, I'm holed up in the playroom watching a rom-com on terrestrial <laughs> television of an evening (laughs) and obviously in that time i watched bad movies i guess but i remember the ones that were great and that i loved and you know as good as it gets is is absolutely one of those i if i had not rewatched this i could have described to you every scene in this movie (laughs) Mm. and quoted it at length i probably don't know it quite as beat for beat as you've got mail but I don't think there's yeah. any film I know quite as beat for beat as you yeah. know. Yeah, 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 100%. Um, the greatest film ever made. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the most TV3 movie of all time. Yes, yes. I think you discover a lot of things if you really knew me. If I really knew you, I know what I would find. Instead of a brain, a cash register. Instead of a heart, a bottom line. Yeah, I was, I was quite intrigued when you decided to kick off the season with as good as it gets uh, not because i had any disrespect for it <laughs> and not because i think we should start with momentous films considering season two began with fists in the pocket <laughs> uh, but as long as i've known you you've been the rom-com guy in any room you have ever been in <laughs> that's really sweet <laughs> You're, it's, it's very true and of all the 90s rom-coms that you could have made me watch it did sort of surprise me that you went with this one because it doesn't have meg ryan in it she can't be in everything (laughs) yeah helen hunt's great helen hunt's the best who doesn't love helen hunt i'm not 100 percent sure i'd seen much helen hunt what a recurring issue with me is you know i know exactly who this person is and could probably rattle off a bunch of films that have been in my head but now that i think about it have I ever actually seen them in anything? That's the Dean the Dean you, process. You uh you never watched Mad About You, the TV show? No. I have read much about the production of Mad About You because I have a book about uh must see TV. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I've never actually seen Mad About You, no. Dean, please tell us about as good as it gets. Actually, before you do that, can I say one thing? Absolutely. I got a big shock rewatching this. When I learned that this movie that I've watched many times, including just a couple of months ago, is two hours and 19 minutes long. If you would given was... me 100 guesses, I would have said 100 <laughs> minutes 100 times. Yeah, no, I was a bit surprised by the length. I wasn't displeased. James, but... James L. Brooks has, has no restraint, and, and I love him. Okay, yeah. now tell us what happens in this very long movie.
So, here's our protagonist. <laughs> Melvin Udall, played by Jack Nicholson. He is a cranky old writer of romantic novels, based mm-hmm. on what we hear. And he lives alone in a big apartment in this nice apartment building. And Melvin has obsessive compulsive disorder, which is made clear he to does. us very very early on. He locks it and relocks his apartment door. One, two, three, four, five. Melvin is, to put it succinctly, a prick. <laughs> Throughout the film, he will repeatedly insult innocent people with no provocation whatsoever. (laughs) He is a bigot who always goes for the prejudiced line of attack when it's available to him. (laughs) And he generally displays very little empathy for other people at any point in the film. (laughs) He's our hero. (laughs) (laughs) He is being bothered by uh, the small terrier owned by his neighbor, Simon, played by Greg Kinnear. The, the terrier is called Verdell, and knowing his name matters, because he is <laughs> arguably the most important character in the film. Melvin is trying to lure Verdell into the elevator, presumably with some nefarious purpose in mind, because he's very annoyed by Verdell's habit of pissing in the common halls of, of the apartment building. And after, after failing to coax Verdell into the elevator, Melvin picks him up, and Verdell starts pissing in the, a long streaming arc, and Melvin uh, furiously shoves him into a trash chute, saying, This is New York. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> Cut to black, title <laughs> of the movie, as good as it gets. <laughs> Right after shoving a dog down a trash chute, uh, the owner of said dog comes out into the hall looking for for Verdell. And Melvin, of course, pretends to know nothing about Verdell's uh, whereabouts while homophobically insulting Simon and then saying some weird racist shit about his friend (laughs) slash agent of some kind, uh, Frank, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., that evening, Simon has an exhibit on uh, in, in his apartment and a handyman working in the building brings him back Verdell, who he found, and I quote, in the dumpster licking poop from baby diapers, which is something he only tells Simon after him and Verdell have been, you know, he's been smooching on Verdell and Verdell has been licking his face and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Simon and Frank go next door to confront Melville. Simon insists he has to do it on his own. But Melvin just abuses him into submission, basically. He's just such a cunt about it. Well, I work all the time. So never, never interrupt me, okay? Not if there's a fire. Not even if you hear the sound of a thud from my home. And one week later, there's a smell coming from there that can only be a decaying human body. And you have to hold a hanky to your face because the stench is so thick that you think you're going to faint. Even then, don't come knocking and and simon you know retreats meekly and then a couple minutes later frank bangs on the door and he wrecks melvin's shit (laughs) you think you can intimidate the whole world with your attitude but you don't intimidate me i grew up in hell homeboy my grandmother had more attitude police donut munching morons help me help me help me assault battery and you're black. I like Simon. I like him enough to batter you unrecognizable if you verbally abuse him or so much as touch that dog again. 
The next day, Melvin goes out for his daily breakfast ritual. He goes to a nearby cafe to sit at one particular table and gets served by one particular waitress, Carol, played by Helen Hunt. When he gets there that day, there is a Jewish couple sitting at his table, played by Peter Jacobson and Lisa Edelstein, who will one day appear together in House. There's a lot of, like, just random (laughs) background people in this film, I should say. Like, there's a cop in one shot, and it's just Maya Rudolph. And you're like, what the fuck? But yeah, Melvin anti-Semitically harasses the couple until they leave. Uh, And when Carol comes to serve him, he makes a cruel remark about her sickly young son, and she gives him a much-needed bollocking. If you ever mention my son again, you will never be able to eat here again. Do you understand? At this point, there's kind of like two threads to the film, and I'm not always going to get the exact order of events right, because it's cross-cutting between them. So on the Simon side of this, some employee of Frank recruits a young man from the docks, played by a, a young and incredibly beautiful Skeet Ulrich, to pose as a model for Simon, who likes to paint people in natural poses. What, what I do is I watch. You ever watch somebody who doesn't know that you're watching them? An old woman sitting on a bus, or kids going to school, or somebody just waiting, and you see this flash come over them. And you know immediately that it has nothing to do with anything external because that hasn't changed. And when you, you see it, they're just sort of realer and they're more alive. I mean, you, you look at someone long enough, you discover their humanity. After a few weeks of painting, uh, the model's friends break into the apartment while Skeet Ulrich is supposed to be keeping Simon distracted. But Virgil alerts Simon, and when he comes in, one of the thieves just like starts beating him mercilessly with like a big lamp or something. It's really, really horrible. He ends up in hospital. His face is covered in stitches and stuff. He needs a cane to walk for weeks afterwards and spends most of this time in a wheelchair. And he can't paint or anything because his arm is in a cast. But he also doesn't want to because he's... Yeah, we'll get to, we'll the get to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frank needs somebody to mind Verdell while Simon is in hospital, but uh, Melvin sticks his head out the door, and because of that fatal error, he is <laughs> he is given Verdell to mind. You're taking him. Yes, yes, you are. Get the hell out of the way. You're taking him. To the surprise of everyone, Melvin and Verdell get along like gangbusters. Melvin <laughs> spoils Verdell with fine food, and when they're out for walks, Verdell starts to copy Melvin's avoidance of the cracks in the footpath, and this del- <laughs> delights Melvin. He like starts to dote on Verdell. It's lovely. Hey. <laughs> Look at that. Look at him. I gotta give you something. I gotta give you something real good, too. I'm gonna show it to you. Come on, buddy. Don't be like me. Don't you be like me. You stay just the way you are, because you are a perfect man, and I'm gonna take you home and get you something to eat. He plays him the piano? Yeah, and and Verdell keeps him company while he's writing, and he's able to finally finish his 60-whatever novel I mentioned the cracks in the footpath, and it might be this might be a good time to briefly talk about Melvin's ticks. And I think the one that really sticks with me is the fact that he washes his hands by opening a new bar of soap 
washing for a couple of seconds and then throwing the entire bar of soap away and then getting another bar of soap and so on until he's he's done. Yeah. But he also, like, he's constantly wearing gloves because he doesn't want to touch anything. He really does not like being touched. Does things in fives, like we were saying, with the light switch and the doors. When Simon gets out of the hospital, he is still severely injured. He's almost catatonically depressed and just, like, fearful and just doesn't want to to do anything, including painting. And this is compounded by the fact that Verdell prefers Melvin to him, which Melvin, like, Melvin agrees to keep walking Verdell for Simon now that he's out, which he's only too happy to do because he's in love with the dog. Simon is broke from his hospital bills. Basically, he's got his hospital bills and he had one exhibition go bad and now he's at risk of losing his home. Yeah. Because this is America. (laughs) And that's what you do. You have one bad month and then you lose everything. Yeah, that is yeah. the American way. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For a small fee in America. Compounding the depression is Verdell's preference for Melvin. And there's this great bit where <laughs> Melvin tells Simon that it's all a trick that... Verdell only prefers him because he carries around bacon in his pocket. And then he gives Simon the bacon and says, look, we'll both call him. You'll see. You'll come to you. You'll mm-hmm. see. And even though Simon does, ha- Simon is holding out bacon to him, Verdell chooses Melvin. And it's like, <laughs> like the worst moment of Simon's entire life. <laughs> come here, baby. No. It's okay. Come here. <laughs> Stupid dog. Could you leave now? Please. One morning, Carol doesn't show up to serve breakfast, and this destroys Melvin's life. (laughs) He's really upset. He insults the waitress who's covering for Carol, and this is the last straw. Uh, The manager who has been threatening to bar him from the cafe for presumably years at this point uh, finally follows through and throws him out and the whole cafe gets up and applauds. But on the way out, Melvin bribes a waiter to give him Carl's surname. And from then he's able to find out where she lives. And he goes to see her at her home because he needs her to come back to the cafe and serve him breakfast. And uh, he briefly meets her son, uh, Spencer or Spence. They never just say one of those two names. So is the two. (laughs) But when Melvin tells the child it's rude to not respond to someone who talks to you, she throws him out because she's just not taking lessons on manners from Melvin Udall. Yeah, so Spencer, as I hinted at earlier, he's quite sick. They never quite say exactly what it is. Like, she talks about it in terms of asthma from when he was a young age, and he probably does have asthma, but his lungs are always filling up with, like, congestion stuff. He has to go to the ER all the time. And in fact, it seems he pretty much only gets emergency medical care, that he doesn't Mm -hmm. have any, like, he doesn't have a GP or anything. Nobody is minding him between episodes, except for Carol and her mother. And just as Melvin's leaving, Spencer has a serious respiratory episode, and Carol 
has to rush him to the hospital. She makes Melvin take them in the cab that he got over to be a weirdo at her. The next day, Melvin goes to his editor's office and asks the editor to get her husband, who is a doctor, to start taking care of Spencer at Melvin's expense. And uh, the doctor is played by Harold Ramis, R.I.P. Carol and her mother, like, it takes them ages to fucking understand what's going on because they, like, cannot comprehend that they are just being given medical care. (laughs) Carol's going back to the apartment and she sees, like, a doctor's car outside with, like, MD written on it. And she freaks out because she's like, oh, my God, is Spencer okay? And then everything's fine. And then the the doctor is just, like, trying to help. And, And it's like, what's happening? This is... Yeah, like, he's just, like, asking routine questions, and they're losing their minds that anybody is asking routine questions. They freak the fuck out when he gives them his home number. Like, they've just won the lotto. That's his home number. (laughs) (laughs) What? Uh... Can we get you anything else? Do you want some uh, water or some coffee? No, thank you. A couple of female slaves. And when he when he reveals like that Melvin is like paying for him. Yeah, not only sent him over, but is covering all the expenses. He says, I was told that you were needed urgently back at work. What do you do? And she says, I'm a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> and her mother goes, in Manhattan. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And we first see her long journey into town when she goes to see Melvin in the middle of the night. Because as grateful as she is for this turn of events, she is also incredibly unsettled and skeeved out. <laughs> because a, a older man at her job, who routinely insults and harasses people, <laughs> is paying for her son's extremely expensive medical care out of pocket just to get her to come back to work. And she goes over and it's raining and she doesn't notice until the very last second that her <laughs> her nipples are extremely visible through her shirt. And Melvin answers the door and she is just like trying to get him to like say outright what she assumes, which is that he's hoping that she will sleep with him. And when he does not offer this up because genuinely... He is just trying to get her back to the restaurant to serve him his <laughs> breakfast. She, like, shouts at him. I'm not going to sleep with you. I will never sleep with you. Never, ever. Not ever. And then the next day, when he goes back to the restaurant, she has written him this, like, many, many, many <laughs> page long thank you note. And he's like, no, thank, no, thank, no, thank you, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'm just going to read you this part of it. And that makes you the most important, surprising, generous person I ever met in my life. And you're going to be in our prayers, our daily prayers forever. Lovely. He's there with Frank because Frank is trying to convince him to take Simon to Baltimore to see his estranged parents, who are the last people he can turn to to ask for money, basically. Initially, Melvin is like, fuck no. 
but then Frank talks him into it anyway, which is what Frank does. He just like insists that Melvin does things until Melvin does them. And Melvin agrees, but he's only going to take Simon to Baltimore if Carol will come with them for some reason. I understand the reason, but from the perspective of everyone else in the story, it is very much for some reason, because Melvin never <laughs> explains his feelings to anyone, ever. <laughs> so the three of them head off to Baltimore. Uh, Melvin has brought a bunch of mixed CDs marked for different uses, like uh, for breaking the ice and to pep things to up pep a bit. things up! <laughs> uh, and later we see... For emergency use only, hidden in his his glove box. Anyway, um, on the drive to Baltimore, Carol and Simon are talking, and Simon starts talking about how he was thrown out of his house by his his father, which was basically when he turned eighteen because of a combination of him being gay and a painter. But the the key is him painting his mother nude. Yeah, and the right. father coming home. I remember I was defending my mother and I, I was trying to, uh, you know, make peace in the the lamest way. I said, she, I said, she's not naked. It's art. <laughs> and he started hitting me. And he beat me unconscious. And he talked to me less and less after that. I mean, he... You know, he knew what I was before I did. And the morning that I left for college, he walked into my room and he held out his hand and it was filled with money. A big, sweaty wad of money. And he said, I don't want you to ever come back. And I just grabbed him and I hugged him and he turned and walked out. Yeah, it's a it's a grim, grim story that Melvin continuously tries to interrupt by talking about himself. Classic Melvin. Classic Melvin. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, Carol says we all have these horrible stories that we need to learn to live with or whatever. And, uh... and Melvin's like, nope! It's not true. Some of us have great stories, pretty stories that take place at lakes with boats and friends and noodle salad. Just no one in this car, but a lot of people, that's their story. Good times, noodle salad. What makes it so hard is not that you had it bad, but that you're that pissed that so many others had it good. No, I don't think so. Not it at all, really. They go to, to, to Baltimore, they're staying in this, like, really nice hotel with a, like, it's a suite, so no one has to share rooms or whatever. Carol gets a call from her son, like, she, he's out of breath on the phone, she's like, what's wrong? He's like, no, I just scored a goal, playing soccer. She's so happy that she wants to go out dancing, but Simon can't go out dancing because he's afraid to leave buildings and can't walk. And thus, she is stuck with Melvin. And Melvin says he's going to pop in the shower while she gets dressed. <laughs> she f Does she fall asleep in the chair waiting oh for him? Oh my god, so much time passed. <laughs> while he's in the shower getting ready. And then he just emerges fully dressed in like a cloud of steam. It's awesome. <laughs> and uh, they go to this really nice restaurant where the maitre d' 
uh, insists it's a coat and tie affair and tries to give Melvin non-cleaned clothes from the back for him to wear over his usual shirt. No, I'm not putting that on. And in case you were going to ask, I'm also not going to let you inject me with the plague either. It's such a nice place. You probably have these dry cleaned all the time, don't you? Actually, I don't think so. Melvin drives back into town, finds a place that's just about to close that can sell him a tie and a blazer. And because he doesn't step on cracks, he has to do this all from the doorway because there's <laughs> tile. There's like a tile mosaic like floor yeah. just inside the door. And like the second Melvin gets back and they sit down, he insults Carol by complaining that he had to wear a suit and tie while she gets to just wear a house dress, which he genuinely did not mean as an insult. But she, like, demands that he compliment her or she'll leave. And the compliment that he gives... Wait, wait, hold on. I just, in here, insert from the gang dines out. (laughs) Say something nice to me. What? I'm not going to sit down until you say something nice to me for once in your life. And he replies... I've got this, what, ailment. My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills. Hate. My compliment is that night when you came over and told me that you would never... Um. Um, all right, well... Uh, you were there, you know, you know what you said. Well, my compliment to you is the next morning I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. You make me want to be a better man. And she is like oh my god, and moves over next to him to get into, like, kissing range. Do you ever let a romantic moment make you do something you know is stupid? Never. Here's the trouble with never. She asks him why he wanted her to come on the trip, and after mumbling for, uh, like, two minutes, as Melvin does, he says he thought maybe that she could have sex with Simon. And turn him straight, I guess. Yeah, he never actually completes the thought is the thing. So, but that's that's the implication. <laughs> well, because once it's out, it's like, oh, fuck, why did I say that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And she's like, you know, furious. And she leaves, back, goes back to the hotel. She says that they're roommates now to Simon because she doesn't want Melvin to come into that room. And she goes to take a bath. And as she's uh, tying up her hair to get in the bath, Simon looks at her and he just whispers to himself, because for the first time since he was attacked, he sees one of those poses that capture him so much. It's it's Carol. She's beautiful. And he, he spends the rest of the night sketching her. He breaks open his cast so he can hold his pens and pencils properly and your white caveman chiseled on walls the next morning melvin storms into the room and is like did you have sex with her and carl comes out from the 
bathroom and he's like, oh, I didn't realize she was here. Did you have sex with her? <laughs> and uh, she says, To hell with sex. It was better than sex. We held each other. Simon rang his parents the previous night and they didn't pick up even though they were definitely in and he left this like voicemail and the next day he calls again and his mother picks up and we don't hear the full conversation exactly but the basic gist of it is Simon decides that he does not need his parents after all that you know he'd rather just keep trying to make it on his own than go crawling back to them when they're on the way back to New York uh, Melvin gets a call, presumably from Frank, and when they are getting close to back to New York, Melvin reveals that uh, Simon's homeless, he's lost his apartment, and when they get back, without ever saying so, he offers for Simon to come live with him for as long as he needs. He's had all of Simon's paintings and other personal possessions brought into the house, and his bedroom in his apartment recreated for him yeah. in one of Melvin's rooms. Carol, on the other hand, does not want to talk to Melvin ever again, it seems, af after recent events. Look, I don't care what you did for me. I... What's wrong? I don't think I want to know you anymore. All you do is make me feel bad about myself. A while later, uh, Simon is uh, calling out for Verdell in terms that cause Melvin some alarm. <laughs> Where's my big hairy boy, etc.? And and they're they're about to have an argument because because Melvin wants Verdell to stay in his room with him and Simon clearly wants Verdell in his room with him, but then the phone rings and Simon picks up and and Melvin's like ah uh, yes I'll use this to my advantage to win this fight over the dog but then <laughs> Simon says it's Carol calling for Melvin and he like take the dog take the dog I don't know whether I'm being sensible or hard on you maybe both maybe. See right there, I don't know whether you're being cute or crazy now. Cute. You don't have to answer everything I say. Just listen to me, okay? Listen to me. It doesn't go Melvin's way. I think Melvin's ready to give up on Carol yeah. at that point. Yeah. And then Simon gives him a big pep talk about how he needs to go get her, goddammit. And so he does. He does what every protagonist of every great New York love story does. He crosses the city to be with her and he gets her to come out for a, a walk with him even though it's 4am and there's this bit where they split apart because Melvin can't walk onto the, the footpath and, and Carol Carol does and they're standing looking at each other separated by all these cracks Carol tries to tell Melvin that despite how they obviously feel for each other, this isn't going to work out between them. And Melvin tries to convince her, and how he convinces her is first he steps onto the footpath to be nearer to her, and then he tells her he has a hell of a compliment. I might be the only person on the face of the earth that knows you're the greatest woman on earth. I might be the only <laughs> one who appreciates how amazing you are in every single thing you do and how you are with Spencer Spence and then every single thought that you have and how you say what you mean and how you almost always mean something that's all about being straight and good and I 
I think most people miss that about you. And I watch them wondering how they can watch you bring their food and clear their tables and never get that they just met the greatest woman alive. And the fact that I get it makes me feel good about me. <laughs> and they awkwardly kiss. <laughs> and then when they're done, Melvin's like, no, nah, I can do better than that. And gives her... <laughs> A big golden age Hollywood kiss, which you could yeah. tell because you can't actually see their mouths. <laughs> They're wrapped up around each other. And um yeah, they, they they start walking down the street, but the bakery opens and they turn back to go in and get warm rolls. And uh as they're going in, somebody is coming out and Melvin opens the door, and at the last second he notices that when he stopped to open the door, he let one of his feet onto the cracked part of the footpath and he looks down and he's like okay and goes into the the bakery to get warm rolls with carol in the film always look on the bright side of life always look on the bright side of life Some things in life are bad, they can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle. This'll help things turn out for the best. This is not the most important thing by some distance, but I do think it is pretty fascinating that this movie made $314.1 million worldwide which is adjusted for inflation, that's 590.7 million. Yeah. Which is 200 million more than Black Adam. <laughs> the hierarchy of power in the DC universe is about to change. This rom-com about an asshole with OCD, his gay neighbor, and a single mother experiencing the inequities of the healthcare system. And I'm like, why, why did Hollywood think they had to go this superhero movie route to make money it's it doesn't make sense yeah i mean even even that that specific figure brings me in mind of the fact that even in this day and age like la 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 people ask how does damien giselle keep getting to make films even though most of his films don't do that well it's because the one that did that well la la land made half a billion dollars <laughs> anyway yeah this, this truly is a film from the last days of you can make money off something that doesn't have any explosions in it, right? <laughs> probably, probably turn a buck on that, right? Right? I got a question for you. Yes. What? What does this film get right about mental illness? <laughs> <laughs> for everyone at home, Dean's number one pet peeve in entertainment journalism is: um, what does this film get right about whatever? And actually, of all the of all the things. <laughs> A film can get right about <laughs> mental illness is my number one thing. Like, I every article that's like what X gets right about mental illness, just hell for me. I just hate them so much. Well, pitch me the article right now. Well, ironically, what as good as it gets gets right about mental illness <laughs> is that mental illness is highly specific and individuated. And if you want to tell a story about a mentally ill protagonist, it is probably 
more useful to try and make a character who seems like an authentically mentally ill person in their like the specific details of their characterization than in trying to apply some sort of fucking checklist system and be like oh we gotta we gotta get seven out of eight seven out of nine diagnostic criteria into this character outline (laughs) or else we're gonna get dragged on twitter i feel like like i was and this isn't something that i would normally think about and this is probably the first time I've ever thought about this, but I was watching it and I was, and it just occurred to me like, oh, if this came out now, people would be really angry. <laughs> yeah, they're on multiple levels. Like, there are so many jokes people make about, like, you could never get away with making this or that today. They always say stuff like, I mean, Blazing Saddles is the Blazing classic Saddles one. Blazing Saddles is the cliche, yeah. But, but in general, they will say, they will cite things that have elements of, like, shock humor or, like, taboo breaking shit. And no, the film that you could not make today is as good as it gets. <laughs> One, for inaccurately portraying OCD, probably, even though, like I said, every mental illness is highly specific and individuated, and the average it mentally seems, ill person like does not probably... get mental illness right by the standard. Sorry, yeah, what were you going to yeah. say? Well, I just thought, like, I don't think that it's, like, a, a really bad portrayal of OCD or anything, but just, like, it's... It's not. It's not. It's not what the movie's about. So yeah. it's not like. And also, it would definitely get savaged for being about an older man and a younger woman. I mean, they're not that far apart in age, but Jack Nicholson does look like that, so it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> just doesn't yeah. help. And the fact that he is a homophobe and a racist <laughs> and anti-Semite and all these horrible things, <laughs> and he like basically never apologizes for any of it, and is rarely even made to feel that bad about it by other characters. This would get savaged for that. (laughs) (laughs) You promised to stop watching that telly and take me on holiday. Shut up your mouth! Ethnic mismatch comedy number 644 has been cancelled. While we scramble to find new programming, please enjoy this encore presentation of Princess Di's Funeral. And uh, would you would you be part of the savagery? No, no. Would you be a staunch defender? Where would you land in the in the discourse of hypothetical today's as good? <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing is, and and this is a true belief of mine, but it also is a very convenient <laughs> get out of arguments free card when it comes to films and TV and stuff. Which is, I really despise narrative bias or like ending bias, where yeah the way a film or story concludes con- is presumed to contain most of the meaning of the story is yeah, located yeah, at the far yeah. end. Yeah, like whether whether a character is punished for their actions and that kind of thing. Or in this case, whether they get the girl. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that this film is arguing that racists and homophobes should get the girl just because <laughs> the guy who gets the girl is a racist and a homophobe, you know? <laughs> Less so with the with the racism, but with the homophobia. Like he is extremely homophobic. It's like crazy how homophobic he is, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But Simon becomes like his best friend. And yeah. Melvin is interesting because even though he has almost no empathy, he is capable of incredible generosity that he doesn't even see as generosity. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously the big example is paying for for medical treatment for for spencer which he's doing for entirely selfish reasons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but not not in like a manipulative way or like a like a there is 
There is no ulterior motive. His motive is exactly (laughs) what he says it is, which is he wants Carol to serve him breakfast. Yeah, yeah. And and, yeah, it's it's this incredible act of generosity that's not done out of any, like, heartfelt anything. And at the end of the film, when he lets Simon stay indefinitely, it's incredibly generous. And, like, I guess it's more heartfelt in the sense that it's not just to his own benefit somehow, but it's still, like, he doesn't he doesn't think of it like he's doing a f- anyone a favor. It's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, he's solving a problem, which is that Simon yeah. doesn't have a place to sleep. And now he does. Done. Yeah. And and in this case, like, the benefit to him is, is probably just for Dell still being around, to be honest. One of my... <laughs> One of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when uh, when Simon and and Melvin get home after the Baltimore trip, and Riddell is there, and uh, and Simon says, "Mommy and Daddy are home." <laughs> the best, the best. Yeah. Anyway, the fact that this film is two hours and nineteen minutes long is such a strength of it. Because, well, it doesn't. It doesn't feel that long. It like zips no, time, but um, not at all. But it leaves room for it to have a lot of fat on it. Yeah, the tastiest part of meat. Yeah, the, yeah, fat. <laughs> fat is what gives things its flavor, and it's yeah, it's kind of baggy and and really takes time to just like spend with the characters. Like mm. what, during your summary, there was times where I felt like you were skipping over stuff, but you weren't skipping over anything that I could like describe as in like a plot. Like you're yeah, just skipping yeah. over like scenes that happen. Like right. when, when Carol talks to her mother about how lonely she is or when Melvin bursts into his psychiatrist office, which is on a street <laughs> that the, it, it has, has the like the most cracked path, <laughs> like in all of New York. And he, he busts in and he's like, if you want to see me, you will not do this. We'll make an appointment. Dr. Green, how can you diagnose someone as an obsessive compulsive disorder and then act as though I had some choice about barging in? There's not going to be a debate. You must listen. You said you could help me. What was that? A tease? And then he bursts back out and he says in the waiting room, What if this is as good as it gets? And yeah, the, t- the title <laughs> drop occurs in a scene too incidental <laughs> for me to fit in my summary. <laughs> Like, but but that's so much the strength of the movie is it has mm-hmm. this kind of incidental anecdotal kind of vibe even though it has this two two kind of plots running along it's yeah. still also just like this movie that's much more character driven than than anything else and like even i think earlier you you described it as a rom-com sort of yeah. and because it it is a rom-com. It's got all the hallmarks of a rom-com. It's structured yeah. like a rom-com. But it doesn't really feel like one yeah, in exactly. the sense that it just because because of that like kind of looseness, that bagginess, that that kind of fat fattiness, it it feels like it's like a rom-com hiding inside a movie about a bunch of other stuff. It is a rom-com and that is like the thing that like ultimately gives the film its structure but it's a car it's mostly a character driven dramedy about this weird guy 
<laughs> and his 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 relationship with his gay neighbor, to whom he is varying levels of hostile over the course of the film. <laughs> I I love Jack Nicholson's performance. Like Jack Nicholson's one of my favorite actors anyway, but I especially love his performance because I feel like almost any other actor they would do one of two things, which is either they would soften Melvin mm-hmm. and kind of shrink away from the material. Do you know what I mean? Like not quite, not quite hit the, the homophobia um, and the racism so yeah, hard. Yeah, he's so venomous. Um, yeah, like when he says there are Jews at my table, he really hits the Jew word. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, Jack Nicholson has a quality where even as Melvin is like horrible you still you don't like him but you like him you know yeah yeah i find just incredible that he pulls mm. that off obviously i've you know like anybody in the english-speaking world i've seen those jack nicholson films i've seen jack nicholson performances from various stages of his career and i've especially seen a lot of jack nicholson from this period of his career from like the 90s <laughs> and noughties when he had very much settled into being jack nicholson <laughs> He was and born settled into being Jack Nicholson. I know, but but every, every Jack Nicholson meme is from this period of his career. Do you know what I mean? That's so true. And and there was a part of me worried that I was I was going to have that problem you get sometimes with with actors who are where you're really familiar with them with their how they act and sometimes the details of the performance can almost wash over you cuz yeah. your brain is just like, "Oh, Jack Nicholson doing Jack Nicholson shit." But the yeah, whole way yeah. through this film I was like blown away by the details of this performance, especially when Melvin doesn't talk and he should be talking and he like has this stunned look on his face or when he's um, like trying to get from one sentence to another or muttering and mumbling as he tries to dig himself out of a hole. And there are all these little just like, you know, micro expressions and ticks and stuff yeah. that aren't, they're def- they're not the product of somebody like, going i'm gonna find an ocd person follow them around and i'm going to imitate the most visible ticks that they have or whatever the fuck he's like it's real inside out just like melvin's emotions from second to second like playing on his face and like his own conflict and discomfort not just with people around him but with himself discomfort's a great word because he's very awkward but he's he's not shy, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a, a real constellation of personality traits that get equated, like being socially awkward and being shy and being anxious. And yeah, and Melvin is, like, supremely confident mm-hmm. and also just, like, extremely uncomfortable being around other people. <laughs> and that those things are both part of why he is the way he is, because it's a lot easier to... <laughs> say something extremely cruel and have people yeah. be mad at you than to you know let your your soft underbelly be shown and have yeah. people be mad at you like it's 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 like a defense mechanism which is not to say that he doesn't mean it or revel in it for that matter yeah oh he does it's <laughs> i love i love the scene where simon describes his backstory for like a bunch of reasons. Um, one, I think it's it's really interesting because the whole movie, when they talk about Simon being estranged from his parents, you just go, oh, because he's gay. Yeah. Like, you don't feel like there is a story, even though, of course, that is a story, but it's like you you fill in like, like the blanks with kind of the cliches. 
And then, but then when he actually tells it, like that's part of it, but it's much stranger than that. Like there's this kind of ambiguity of if his mother was abusive almost. Mm. Like was she being very supportive of his art or was she being a fucking creep, you know? And it's like, and the father's like rage is like simultaneously like almost jealousy. Yes. And then also homophobia and then also there's definitely a really interesting link between like his father's violence and the violence that he experiences from the home invaders yeah even though they're presumably gay i thought a lot about the home invader group even though they ultimately are <laughs> a quite a small presence in the film because obviously what they do well mainly what the one guy does to Simon yeah. is is horrible. Is horrible. The guy who acts as the model is like not on board <laughs> with it. No, and and the other there's there's three total, and like the the other guy is there to steal, not to he's he he, yeah. he was not planning to to engage in violence, and yeah. they don't really linger on those characters or anything. But I kept thinking about them because they are these homeless young men living on the streets and are like you said, presumably gay, like Simon and. For me, they kind of unlock something about the film because this is a film of a constellation about a constellation of really hurt and damaged people hurting and damaging yeah. each other until yeah. there are these turns that they like start to help help each other yeah. and yeah. Um, yeah. in a more pared down rom com, it's easier I think for people to twist the idea of like do they get together in the end or not as being like a sort of value judgment on on the characters and the story and stuff like this but in this film like first of all there are there are more important characters than just the two romantic leads at the very least there is simon and then they're all connected to this you know there's there's carol's mother there's frank there are loads of people in this story who uh not only matter to the narrative but like increasingly second whether directly or secondarily matter to melvin like yeah. he doesn't like Frank. I love that bit where, like, after, like, he's like <laughs> egging him on about like Carol, where Ellen just goes, "All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, let's not drag this out. We don't enjoy one another that much." <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so when it comes to stuff like, does Melvin deserve to have Carol, considering <laughs> he's, blah, 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 it's like. Yeah such a simplistic way to look at a film that is about these evolving relationships where like you don't need the shift explained to you at any point. You don't need anyone to tell you at any point that Simon and and Melvin have become really, really close friends. You, you are informed of it by watching it happen on the screen. (laughs) Well, the fact that like early in the movie, when Simon finds out that Riddell is with, melvin he's like freaking out and he's like he's gonna hurt, he's gonna hurt my dog yeah and then by the end of the movie he tells melvin he loves them and melvin says i tell you buddy i'd be the luckiest guy alive if that did it for me <laughs> which is is both very sweet and a little homophobic yeah yeah uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah which is perfect the first time I saw you was the day that I hit puberty. You played a beautiful girl, shunned by society. It wasn't your fault, you just smoked one lace doobie. 
That after school special made me wanna never do PCP Oh Helen Hunt, Helen Hunt You make my heart do acrobatic stunts You stand and face the brunt Of the twister of my burning want Helen Hunt, you know I'm mad about you Dean? Kira? Do you think As Good As It Gets is As Good As It Gets? It's a twist on the old usual. Yeah, um, the title of the film. If it's not as good as it's as it gets, it was as good as it got in 1997, probably. Um, Fuck you, Titanic. Honestly, I haven't seen Titanic in a while, but I was never that, that big a fan. So yeah, fuck you, Titanic. Titanic rules. Titanic rules. Fuck you. <laughs> never let Billy Zane on a boat. That's the lesson. <laughs> That's the lesson of Titanic and Dead Cam and no other films. But that's a weird number of films to have that lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, as good as it gets. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic stuff. Uh, they don't make them like this anymore. They really they don't. don't. Even James L. Brooks. Um, James L. Brooks hasn't made a movie since he embezzled all that money in 2010. Yeah. In my opinion. <laughs> For 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 he for for what's it called again? How do you know cost one hundred million dollars? Yeah, and it's a film so so forgotten to time that I until recently, when Kira corrected me, and I believe many other people uh, are incorrectly under the assumption Jack Nicholson's last film was The Bucket List because who remembers that he did how? how I can't even remember the name of this film. I I have to it. assume that Jack Nicholson was also in the embezzlement scheme brackets yeah. in my opinion <laughs> yeah it's like you know it's like how do all I'm those adam sandler we... movies cost that much yeah because yeah, adam yeah, sandler yeah, is yeah. using them to pay his friends exorbitant salaries which is um, sweet in a way <laughs> yeah yeah it's like i said in that that piece way back when is that like fundamentally the scam of adam sandler films is not the inflated budgets it's the decreasing quality um <laughs> No, I'm 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 really glad that I that I watched this. It's one of those films I pro- I po- quite possibly would never have gotten around to just because, um, you know, there were so many uh, films I should watch in any period. And uh, one of the weird things is films I've seen bits of on TV they get lower down because I've already yeah. seen some of them, so they get lower down the priority. I get it. It's He's a cra- He's an asshole with a gay neighbor or something. I don't need to see this. I did need to see this. It was, it was great. Um, he is an asshole with a gay neighbor, though. You were right about that. That's true. I assumed. I I assumed from my memory because all I remember was Jack Nicholson having to take care of the dog for his gay neighbor. I assumed the gay neighbor had AIDS. No AIDS in this film. <laughs> That's. That is more homophobic than anything that <laughs> Calvin says in the movie. <laughs> Next episode, uh, in a very strange take on our usual style, I am showing Kira at all time widely considered among the greatest films ever made, American classic, by uh, an acclaimed new Hollywood director, uh, that she hasn't seen somehow <laughs> to this point. <laughs> uh, it's Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, 
And the thing is, it's not like you haven't seen Robert Altman films. <laughs> it's just for some reason. I, yeah, I I have I have mixed feelings on on Altman. Um, mm. or I did for a long time. I fucking love Nashville. Nashville's like the best. Mm. And I fucking love come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is very much a, a minor Altman. Yeah. And I hate, um, Tanner 88, Tanner 88, the TV show he made. But yeah, in general, like Robert Altman's style of like overlapping dialogue and, and lots of different stories that intersect and stuff. I find not tiresome exactly, but it's kind of hit, hit and miss for me. But Nashville, I feel like when I saw Nashville, that really unlocked the the possibility of Altman for me. Because before that, I really like come back to the five and nine Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, but was otherwise pretty lukewarm. Yeah. And then I saw Nashville, which is one that people like. And I was like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. So hopefully that will... That will transfer over. Hopefully the so, fact that I have not seen any of the Robert Altman films that you have, but like <laughs> Robert Altman much more, will not make the dynamics of the episode quite weird. Because uh, I've, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I think I've only seen 70s Altman, apart from that one weird sci-fi film he did with Paul Newman <laughs> for some reason that nobody should What's watch. That? It's called Quintet, and it's terrible. <laughs> Do not watch it. Okay. Quintet. Somewhere... The game is beginning. What are you doing? What are you Until next time, I'm Kira Maloney. I'm Dean Buckley. The song was Bush Dog by Alexander Nakarada. And this was the Sunday Presents. And happy birthday to Lorene Scafaria. Next week on Dr. Dave, does your raccoon have OCD? Maybe?